Good morning, everyone. Boy, it's really great to be able to open up the scripture together this morning. I'm so excited to do that and so grateful uh, to God and for all of you for the opportunity to do that. It really, really feeds my soul. Um, so I've been feasting on this passage uh, and this book for a bit. Revelation chapter 19 is where we are heading. And I just want to take a second and uh, set up the context that we're about to enter. And let me get all these crazy electronic things working. All right. I'm, I'm still like the paper and pen guy, so this is still very new to me. Uh, <clears throat> Whenever we read the scripture, it's really important to remember the genre that is being used by God to communicate his word to us. And what is the genre? Well, for instance, when we read through, let's just say, for instance, the gospel records, these are historical narratives. We are intended to read that as if we are reading an historical account of any other events that have taken place on planet Earth. And then there's poetry, and when we read that, we're expecting liberties to be taken with language because we don't always mean things literally. My love is like a doe. Well, you know... Deer hunters might be getting revved up by that thought right now, but the rest of us are like, ah, what? But if it's poetry, then we're like, oh, okay, oh, all right, it's poetry, a graceful doe, got it. Uh, And then there's prophetic uh, books in the scripture. The book of Isaiah, for instance, just for one example. Uh, The book of, um, well... To move on, there's the apocalyptic genre, which is where we find ourselves this morning. And that's quite different. And examples of that would be the book of Ezekiel, as well as the book of Revelation. If you've ever stuck your nose in the book of Ezekiel, I wouldn't be surprised if, like me, if you've ever opened it and stuck your nose in it, you've quickly closed it and said, okay, maybe the Psalms this morning, okay? (laughs) Let's just, let's just have a nice psalm because, you know, a thousand eyes and wheels that are racing and I don't know who these people are, but I feel like I'm more like in a Marvel Transformer movie than I am receiving something that God's trying to communicate. And if I forget the genre, I'm not getting it. If we forget the genre this morning, we're not getting it. So that's why I wanted to just kind of mention that. Then there's... Uh, structure in apocalyptic books like Ezekiel, like Revelation today. Things are happening, but not necessarily sequentially. Many things can be happening at the same time. There could be intervals of time which aren't being expressed in the description. So, for instance, when we look this morning at the return of Jesus Christ, we're going to find ourselves in this story. We're heading into the middle of chapter 19. But if we were to start at the beginning of chapter 19, 
we would see ourselves at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Singing, celebrating. And then we would read that we and Christ are changing clothes at the conclusion of that dinner and getting dressed for what is about to come. Well, what is about to come? The return of the king. And then that's the middle, you said, of chapter 19. What comes after that? Uh, Difficult stuff to read. Uh, God making war and judging the nations. So if you're just reading chapter 19, you can go to, oh, wow, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Woo! The return of the king. Yes, come Lord Jesus. God making war on the nation and therefore having a blood-stained garment as a result. What? We have to realize when we're reading through things like this that we're not looking at a chronological, necessarily things happening in the sequence of time like we're used to. So this isn't, this isn't like a play, Act 1, Act 2 follows that, intermission, Act 3 comes next, and the whole thing's over by a certain time. We're talking about being outside of time when we read these things. God is outside of time. His eternal existence is outside of time. And when we die or when he returns, whichever comes first, we will be immediately transported outside of time with him. And so it's just important to keep in mind because uh, we'll be reading some things that will not make sense always if we don't keep that in mind. Uh, An example... uh, I'm, an example of this could be the actual experience of John in writing this letter. In the fourth chapter, in verse 1, this is what he says. He says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door? Well, maybe so. How would I know? But I'm not thinking it's like what's on sale at Home Depot. I'm thinking it's probably very different. Is it a door at all? Well, it's an opening in heaven. He says, I saw a door in heaven. Maybe that's how God is getting his attention. Then he says this, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, speaking to me like a trumpet. I'm sure he didn't mean the actual, you know, kind of a thing. But there was something about this voice, and that's what it's reminded him of. So he sees a door in heaven, he hears the voice of a trumpet, and then this is what he hears said to him. Come up here. Come up here. So John looks up, sees the door, hears a voice, sounds like a trumpet, come up here. And immediately... He is in the throne room in heaven. And behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. How did he get up there? Was it long? Was it like, do we need, uh, do we need like a musk-like uh, vehicle to transport? Come up here. So when God calls us with him, whether it be in death 
or whether it be when he returns. Sometimes we can wonder, what is this all going to look like? What's going to happen in between? I know I'm going to be with them, but where? What? It'll be, come up here, and there we are with him. Be encouraged by that. Anticipate that. Listen for that. Come up here. It's happened before in Scripture. You remember Philip explaining the book of Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the guy believes. And the guy himself says, hey, there's water. What's to stop me from being baptized? Philip's like, "Uh, nothing. They get out. Philip baptizes him, and he says immediately, he, he, uh, the eunuch saw him no more, and Philip found himself at Azotus. So this guy's like in the Gaza Strip when this is happening, the Ethiopian dude, and Philip immediately finds himself north, maybe close to 100 miles away, just like that. Uh, There's other examples, but you get the point. See, God will move us, not at the speed of light, because sometimes I can geek out over the universe, and I just wonder, where, where? But where are you exactly in heaven, and where is that? And then you read these stories about billions of light years and trillions of light years, and you're thinking, huh? God doesn't move at the speed of light. God moves us at the speed of thought. And so when he wants us, where he wants us, there we will be in the blink of an eye. It actually won't even take that long. Okay, the context for chapter 19. We are deep, deep, deep into John's revelation. The nations are at war with one another. It's tough to read some of the descriptions. They're brutal and they're horrific. And if you read the prophecies centuries before the book of Revelation, like in Zechariah, that point to this great tribulation, I was reading one yesterday, And over dinner with my wife, I said, I can't read this to the church. I just feel like I can't. I mean, my own grandkids are going to be here. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty descriptive. It's pretty horrific. I thought, I'm not. I'm not not doing that. So I just mentioned that so that you can get the flavor of what's happening on planet Earth in a period called the Great Tribulation, which precedes the return of our King. Believers in Christ are already with the Lord. The dead in Christ have been raised. Come up here. Actually, at their death, they were with the Lord. To be absent from the body, the scripture says, is to be present with the Lord. What will that all look like? Not sure. When Paul tells the story of being transported to that third heaven, which button is that on the elevator? Are we lobby, ground floor? Is there a first heaven? Where's, what am I looking at there? Is that where the moon is? Where's the second heaven? Paul went to the third heaven. Is that the penthouse? Is that like where the holy of holy in the heavens is? I don't know. I don't know. But he says, interesting in scripture, Paul says, when I was, actually he speaks in the third person, he says, 
whether in the body or not, I'm not sure. So even 14 years later, when he's writing this in the third person, he's saying, I'm not sure. Was was I transported with my body there or not? I'm not sure. Oh, let that comfort us like a warm blanket as we anticipate the Lord calling us one day. We'll be with him. Will we, our physical bodies not yet resurrected and glorified? Will we even know? Will we even care? It's not going to be like a Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of scenario. Oh, my. Revelation chapter 19 in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in, other translations read, sprinkled with, sprinkled in, blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me, let me just ask for the Lord to be present with us and to help me re-speak this. Lord, I'm, I'm not used to seeing you in these terms always, hardly at all. You know I don't enjoy the warfare talk. Many of us probably don't. It's unfamiliar to us, Lord. Lord, I I like you in the first advent before the first coming. This second advent season that we live in, Lord, when we look ahead to its conclusion and we consider the terrible things wrought by the rebellion of Satan and his deception of the nations, It fills us and silences us in awe and wonder. So speak to our hearts, Lord. Why is this here, O God? And what do you want to say to our hearts today? Let us see you, God. Let us know you, God. In the way that you describe yourself 
in this scripture. And Lord, to that end, I thank you in Jesus' name. Well, this is, this is a different advent, isn't it? This is, uh, this is hardly like the first advent. And then Jesus comes. It's so, it's so much safer. He's embryonic in his coming. Did you know that? You knew that. He came as an embryo. The seed of a woman, but God the Father. He developed as a fetus. Everybody was feeling safe. He wasn't bothering anybody. He's in the womb for nine months. This is a Jesus we can feel like we can get close to. We can pull up a chair with. I love Christmas. And I love the sentimentality of it as well. And within a week, I'll have my little manger out on the mantle. And there'll be this little infant in this little crib. And I will thank God for coming for us and for Lord the humility of emptying himself and putting on human flesh for the first time in eternity past. Awesome. Not sure what I would do with the picture of Jesus in the advent I'm living in. Robe dipped in blood. That's a that's a crazy tree topper. I could just see the family and the neighbors coming into my house. The nations are at war. They're at war with one another. All hell is literally breaking loose. They're at war with one another. They're all at war with Israel. God has supernaturally removed the believers. Was that hard? No. He just said, come up here. And there we were. God has provided supernatural evangelism for Israel. Too much to say. I apologize in advance to even make comments like this and not be able to unpack them. But I hope it makes you curious. I hope it makes you dig and read. I hope it makes you want to wonder further about the Lord Jesus Christ and this King of Kings and his glorious return and the events surrounding it. Nations rising against nations. And then we see the Lord break through in the clouds. In the description we just read, what do you think the nation's response to this was? Do you ever think about that? I have thought about that from time to time. Not a great deal. But I always assumed it was going to be like a, whoa, moment for the nations. Like full stop, hard stop, Uh uh-oh, like dad's home, Uh uh-oh, like the dog when you get home, Uh uh-oh, the pillow was like that, I didn't do that, that's not their response at all, their response is shocking, 
when the Lord breaks through the cloud with his myriad of angels and the saints, us, when I say saints, it's all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the people depicted in statues and cathedrals, some of whom will be there as well. When the nations see that, they move their attack to God himself. Such is the deceit, the satanic deceit, that will creep over the nations, influence, inhabit people groups and governments and political structures and economic structures. Satan knows his time is short and he ain't giving up easy. He ain't giving up at all. So they attack this rider on the horse, this Lord Jesus Christ. It's crazy. It's a suicidal mission. The return of Jesus Christ signals... The very soon coming end of war. See, war's been raging for seven years, as we're told in the scripture. It's at the end of those seven years that the Lord returns. Before everything is destroyed, although cataclysmic damage has already been done. The bowls of judgment that we read about earlier, they've been long poured out over these years. The scrolls that were sealed, they've been opened. Those judgments have been delivered by his avenging angels. That's all in the past. The earth is in shambles. Many have died. God is still reaching out with supernatural evangelism. Such is his desire that no one perish, but he's coming to put an end to the reign of Lucifer, that cherub angel who was allowed to exercise authority and government over the earth and the heavens that God created and then thought he was smart and smug and tried to usurp God And we pick up the story there in Genesis 3 with the deception of Eve and Adam. The rest is history. But that history is about to be concluded here. He's on his horse, his white horse. It's a figure of war. And it's a figure of victory. He has these names. There's four of them that are mentioned in this one paragraph. These aren't all the names that he has, but they are the ones that John saw at this moment as he came to earth on his horse. The first name was Faithful and True. Probably doesn't need a lot of elaboration. That's just, that's just who he is. 
The second name, it tells us in verse 12, is a name that no one knows but himself. Again, it's apocalyptic literature. We must remember that. So how did he see a name that he didn't know that no one knows but God himself? One of the secret things that belong to the Lord. But I think it's meant to convey to us that God is beyond searching out. That no matter the eons in eternity to come, we will never stop the searching out of the glory and the majesty and the wonder of Christ. As Isaac pressed home last week, heaven and eternity future is anything but a boring place. There's another name, verse 13. The name by which he is called the Word of God. And it immediately transports those of us familiar with John's letter, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made. And that's a name that he wears on that horse. Why? It testifies to his authority and his sovereignty over what he created and he made. Satan did not create. Satan deceived. This is his creation, his race, his planet, his heavens, and this long rebellion is going to be brought to a sudden end. So he's got the name, the Word of God. Another name as well, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The nations are raging. Governmental leaders all over the planet see him when he returns. Somehow, everyone alive will see him at his return. There are prophecies outside of Revelation, written much, much earlier, which tell about the Lord manipulating daylight and nighttime. Everyone will see him. Instantly, suddenly. And you know, we can, we can go all PBS with this. And I'm tempted to do that, geek out. Well, what about the people in Australia? It's nighttime there. Uh, not a problem for God. Well, the earth is round. I mean, you know, what? If he comes over to North America, are the Australians going to know? Yeah. They'll know, they'll, know. <laughs> they'll know in Sydney, they'll know in Perth, they'll know in Hong Kong, they'll know in New York City, they'll know in Toronto, they'll know in London, they'll know in Nairobi, and in Cape Town. They will know. It's funny to me the names that don't get mentioned in this section of Scripture that are in other sections of Scriptures the names that are on him. Because they're there, it's just he's not seeing them now. The one I'm thinking about is the one Isaiah tells us about 
in chapter 49, verse 16. And you know what that is? If you believe in Jesus Christ and have said to him, it's impossible for me to meet a perfect standard, but you did. If you will take away my sin and give credit me with your righteousness, I can have access to you now and forever. That's what becoming a Christian is. Those who have done that, those who are living that, their names are written on the palm of his hand. How does that flesh out? I don't know. But when this rider's coming with the horse and he's grabbing those reins, think about it. Susan, John, this Christmas season, as talk of, oh, I almost said the S-A-N-T-A word, and I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to create havoc here. I'll create havoc that'll make like the tribulation look like a kid's tea party if I, <laughs> if I finish that thought. <clears throat> he knows your name. He knows your name. He knows your name. Where is it? It's on his hand. It's on his hand. <clears throat> Scripture tells us in this book, in chapter 2, that God is going to give us in heaven a new name. doesn't mean you won't be known by your old name, because this new name, it's not going to be known to anyone else. Why is he doing this? Such is the intimacy you will have with God. You have a name for your, your spouse that you don't want to record in this mic today? <laughs> He's got a name for you. Such is the intimacy, listen, he feels with you. We live unaware of it. It's not our idea. It's not like, oh, Lord, can we get the trinket together? Like if when my... Oldest daughter was two years old. I, I took her out for a little date, and there was one of those photo booths, and you could have a pin made with your picture on it, and we did, and she still has it. But this is God's idea. This isn't our idea. Hey, God, can we get a selfie? No. He thought this up all by himself. He's already got it. He's waiting for the moment that he's going to give it to you. Oh, my. Well, what's his work? Here he comes. What's he here to do? Well, he's, he's here to judge and to make war. Genesis 18.25 asks the rhetorical question, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Would it be right for him to stay in heaven and not come back and put an end to this? Would that be right? If it's difficult to see him in the robe that he's wearing on the horse and with the armies and with his mission and purpose, how much more difficult if he was deciding to be passive and abandon us and not return? Oh, no. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. But his work here is to judge and to make war. 
His appearance is, well, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything. He misses nothing. That's good and embarrassing news for us as believers. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, No creature is hidden from his sight. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's wearing crowns, or at least a crown with many diadems, which is often referred to as the jewels that go in the crowns. And, you know, if you watch any of the uh, commemorative shows about Queen Elizabeth, eventually you'll see her wearing a diadem. This is going to be a little nicer. Actually, the scripture tells us that there are many crowns that he's wearing. But, again, we're in apocalyptic literature, so we have to remember this isn't like a stack of crowns, like a crazy Burger King commercial and him trying to steady them as he rides back on a white horse. This is an imagery meant to deliver us to who he is. Oh, that head wore a different crown after the first advent. A crown of thorns. See, the first advent, he came. He had a mission too, which Galatians 3.13 says was to become a curse for us. But now he wears many crowns. Some of them are called incorruptibility, some joy, righteousness, glory, sovereignty, creator. And his robe, sprinkled with blood. First place my mind goes when I'm reading through the scripture is I'm thinking, oh, this is probably to remind us that he was the lamb who was slain. And this is his blood when he took our place in judgment. But it's not. Isaiah foretold this picture long before John received his revelation. Isaiah chapter 63 records this. Who is this who comes? In crimson garments, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the person responds to Isaiah, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah asks, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread in the winepress? The answer, I have tridden, treadened trodden, the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. Notice Christ is assuming sole authority and sole responsibility for what is about to take place. He said, he continues, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. He's depicted with his sword coming from his mouth. Again, not a transformer image. This is the sword of truth. This is compatible with the name truth. 
it symbolizes that he is who he said he was, the way and the truth. He's coming with his armies, his armies of heaven. Verse 14 says, Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Multitudes of angel armies will surely accompany him. However, many see this reference to believers, the church, based on the description a couple verses earlier in verse 8 of this passage. If so, our role will not be to wage war. Remember what he told Isaiah. Alone did I go to tread the winepress of my wrath. Our role will be to, to the praise of his glory. Just by being caught up with him and accompanying him, we add to his glory. As Satan and the nations who were deceived and loyal to him and now hating God more than ever see the redeemed of the Lord coming with him. Boy, that'll rub it in if you're Satan, won't it? His doom is sure. Here comes the redeemed with their king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Our role will be to be associated with him in judging the world and fallen angels. First, first Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 read as follows. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And Paul's saying that as if like, I know you've been taught this. Let's, let's do a refresher on some things. Actually, the context is, He's trying to discourage them from taking their grievances to the civil authorities and suing one another. He's like, really? 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 Don't you know you're going to judge the world? And he continues, do you not know that we are to judge angels? That's our role. That's why we're with him as well. To the praise of his glory... And because he's including us in the work of judgment to this fallen world and to the fallen angels, I have no idea what that will look like. It's a sober moment to be sure. I just ask Brandon and the other musicians, please come back so that we can sing another song, perhaps. Why is God revealing these things and more about impending judgment? Why tell us? Why tell us? These aren't not necessarily on the surface may not seem like feel-good messages. Say, Joe, I like it better when you were talking about Psalm 90, God empowering Moses and, you know, delivering his people and this war, this blood, this wine press, this wrath, this anger. God wants to comfort us. That's why he's telling us. He longs to gather us to himself. God doesn't need to be informed, although he loves to be informed by you about the difficulties and the sorrows and the trials of living life in these shadowlands that C.S. Lewis called them. He wants us to know that 
He's in control of all things. Always. He wants us to know that and to understand that he's patient and delays his return. Because sometimes don't you just look at the clouds and think, Lord, will you just come back? This is really hard. Just please come back. Why doesn't he come back? Well, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Second Peter 3.9 says, He's not slow to fulfill his promises. He's patient toward you. The day of the Lord will come, and when it does, it'll come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There will be a day where God will fulfill that promise in actuality, and we will be a player in it experientially. Those of us who are clinging to the righteousness of Christ, which he's freely given us, not by our works, not because we've earned it, not because we haven't been as bad as... But because God wanted to make a way. He poured out his wrath before. He poured out his anger before. This is not the first time God is going to ride to avenge. He poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ. That's the cross. Why would he do that? Well, his his son signed up for it. It was God's way of making a way where there was no way because his standard is perfection. And Satan, in his rebellion, had taken that option off the table entirely. There will be a day when the new heavens and the new earth are here in perfection. There will be a day where you'll be with the Lord in your glorified body in perfection. There will be a day, but it's not this day. But in this day, God is patient and calling us to receive the righteousness of his son, not our own. Take off these filthy robes, put on the clean white one. I want to invite you to consider to do that if you've never have. See, there will come a day for the new heavens and the new earth. No more sin, sorrow, suffering, death, disease, frustration, loss. There will come a day where there's no more loneliness or poverty or jealousy or futility. There will come a day that to the end of the struggle to do good But the presence of sin wars against you every single time. There will come a day when that is put behind us. Think about this when you get up tomorrow and face the difficulties of living in the real world. Think about this when you get up tomorrow and you're at work and you're hating every blessed minute of it. Think about this when you're going to school and you're anxious and unsettled and Wishing things were different. Think about this. The next time you watch or read the news and become anxious over current events. Think of this 
when relational strains and the fractures bring sorrow or depression. Think of this as loved ones wither away. Think of this if it seems like you don't know where God is or even if God is. The same author here consoles us in his gospel, chapter 14, Gospel of John. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. As Isaac read last week, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I wouldn't have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. There will be a day. There will be a day, church, when all will bow before him. There will be a day when he wipes away the final tears. There will be a day when death itself dies and is no more. There will be a day when we are finally, fully, and physically with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is really all I am moved to pray right now. It's the model you gave us. The opening thoughts, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I know there will be a day when that prayer is no longer necessary because we are living in the actual reality of it. But that is not today. Today we must get up and go from here. Today we won't all be together to encourage and lift and support one another up. We'll be at work. We'll be at home. Lord, you know what this day holds. Nothing is hidden from you. You live outside of time. Let your spirit fall upon us, O God. And Lord, remind us of these things this Christmas season when we celebrate the culmination of the first advent. Lord, remind us not to rob us of any joy of your incarnation, but Lord, to remember that we have a blessed hope, Jesus Christ, who will come for us from his heavens and take us to himself that where he is, we shall also be.